Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Mary, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Telephone Education Workshop, Medical Emergencies in Cancer Treatment. Now, this is the first time we have offered a program on this important topic, and I think there's a lot of very good information that you're going to learn today about this, about this information. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and a number of other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration that we have been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on today's program over 500 participants, and you come from all over the United States. You come from large cities and small cities and from suburban areas, and we also have participants from rural and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, and the U.K. So you really come from all over the world, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us um, to learn about this topic. Now, I just want to... Uh, turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. And those materials is an outline that our speakers have prepared. And um, there also is um, information about all the different collaborating organizations as a resource to each of you. And, of course, there is an evaluation form. And I would ask you to take a moment at the end of today's program and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us the programs and the topics that you would like to to recommend that we do um, during the next year. So I very much appreciate your feedback, and it really does um, allow us to create programs that are much more useful to you. Um, and so um, if you could take that moment, I, I really appreciate that. Now, today's program is made possible by an educational grant from Santa Fe Aventis U.S. LLC, and I really want to thank them for supporting this, this important program. And we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Crawford. And Dr. Crawford is George Barth Geller Professor for Research in Cancer, Chief of Medical Oncology, Department of Medicine, Duke University Medical Center. And Dr. Crawford is really going to focus on um, infection, um, but he is going to start with an overview of really medical emergencies in cancer treatment to understand a little bit about the context of that. And his focus is going to be on infection, some of its causes, and really how to manage it um, and how to talk to your healthcare team about it. So I'm now going to turn the program over to Dr. Crawford. Hey, Carolyn, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me to participate in another cancer care uh, conference. I think these are very valuable, uh, I think, for all of us, for both the faculty and the uh, patients and family members and others uh, calling in. So, so with all the things that uh, cancer patients face in terms of the diagnosis, the treatment, uh, the side effects, the survivorship issues, I think uh, this is a little different area, but uh, my focus has been around supportive care in general. And I think you could look at these areas we're going to be talking about as uh, supportive care, but supportive care that needs to be delivered uh, very urgently often uh, because of the immediacy of the complications that the problems may lead to. Uh, and for some of these, there are preventive strategies that can prevent the emergency from developing. So I think uh, that's a link. Uh, there's three different topics we'll be talking about, and there's certainly other medical emergencies that, that can occur uh, with uh, the treatment and management of cancer and from the cancer itself. But 
I think these are very, very important ones. And the one I'm going to focus on first is infection. And so infection, uh, I was asked to give a definition, so I decided I would look at uh, uh, Wikipedia, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do. But it, uh, the definition says, an infection is the detrimental colonization of a host organism by a foreign species. That doesn't make a lot of sense, except I can tell you right now I've got a cold, and uh, I know what that feels like. So uh, this is a virus that's invaded not my body. That's the uh, foreign species. I'm the host organism. And uh, as Wikipedia says, this does have a detrimental effect on the, uh, on the host, and I can certainly vouch for that as well. Um, so the infecting organism really is trying to utilize our body's resources to basically uh, grow and survive, and uh, in that there's, there can be um, negative effects for us, whether you're talking about a cold like I have, or you're talking about a more serious infection such as a pneumonia where there's an infection from a bacterial infection in the lung or perhaps a, a urinary tract, a bladder infection, an infection of the uh, gastrointestinal tract. So uh, what the signs and symptoms of the infection are really are going to depend upon what the type of organism is, whether it's a bacteria or a virus or some more unusual types of infections, such as fungal infections, and then what, what part of the body is being affected. Um, so I think that's going to affect uh, uh, how patients feel and what the, what the side effects are. Now, we're, we're all at risk for having infections uh, in a normal state. What happens in the setting of cancer is that the cancer itself may predispose patients to developing uh, more serious infections because of the anatomy that develops. For example, a patient who has lung cancer has a mass in their lung, and that might uh, prevent the normal clearance of the secretions from the lung and might predispose one to get a pneumonia, for example. And there are certainly cancers in other parts of the body that might predispose patients to get uh, infections elsewhere. So I think the risks of different types of infections are going to be different with uh, different cancer settings. Um, but I think the signs and symptoms that are common will be those that we're used to seeing when we diagnose infection ourselves and in, uh, either in ourselves and in, in family members. And that's usually fever and just feeling poorly. Um, and those are the most systemic symptoms we see. Sometimes it's associated with chills, shaking chills and feeling cold. Um, but often it's the fever and the feeling poorly that really are the signs that uh, uh, we notice the most. So I think it's an important, again, in the cancer patient to recognize that sometimes the fever may not be as high, the patients may not feel um, as feverish as perhaps a child would with a fever. Sometimes the fever is blunted. So even just a real change in how people are feeling from feeling really well one day to very poorly the next may well be a sign that there's some underlying infection. And then it's important to think about, is there a new cough? Is there um, some burning in the urine? Is there uh, some change in the, in the bowel habits that could also be a sign of infection? Is there an ulcer in the skin? These are all different possible uh, signs of, of a possible infection, but I think the common feature will be how patients feel overall and whether there's a fever. So, so how can you um, manage this? What are the ways that you can, can deal with this? Well, first of all, you want to avoid it if at all possible. So uh, the way to avoid infection, um, certainly hand washing is very important, uh, particularly after contact with other people, to wash your hands. We all should be doing that frequently. Um, there's a lot of folklore around avoiding crowds and um, not going out in public when someone is, for example, taking chemotherapy, which also 
predisposes one for, to infection. But I think that that's um, a little bit overplayed. I think the, the common sense is to stay, stay away from people with active infections. So if um, family members are, are sick, you probably want to avoid them uh, when you're going through cancer, cancer treatments. But you're not going to be able to avoid all infections. And, and certainly staying in and uh, isolating oneself is not healthy in general. So I usually tell my patients to stay active, to stay out, but to stay away when they see someone that's, uh, that's ill. And then very importantly, uh, adequate sleep and nutrition and uh, exercise are all important things to do. Um, things that, uh, again, are, so, are often overplayed uh, is avoiding fresh fruits and vegetables. That really doesn't apply for most cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy. It really should only be restricted to settings where there's a prolonged period of, um, of where the immune system is not healthy, and that happens in settings of transplantation and sometimes uh, acute leukemia, very specialized settings, but not in the routine outpatient management. So you don't need to restrict your diet um, uh, particularly, and it is important to, to eat a healthy diet and to maintain weight during this. Uh, so those are all things that are sort of practical guidelines that, that can be helpful. Um, there are certainly a, a, a myriad of clinical trials that have been done, but most of them have been around the actual treatment of um, infections when they develop. And as I alluded to, one of the most serious things that happens from chemotherapy is that the white blood cell count can be lowered after chemotherapy. And when the white, cell blo white blood cell count, particularly what's what we call neutrophils or the fighting white blood cells, when those numbers get too low, then sometimes um, fever can develop uh, almost spontaneously from one's own uh, bacteria on the skin or in the gastrointestinal tract. So that's not something you can prevent from happening if that happens, but it is something that you need to be aware of, and should you develop a fever um, during chemotherapy, it's not something that you want to email your doctor or call on Monday morning. It's really something when a fever develops and you're feeling badly and you're in the midst of chemotherapy treatment, you need to bring that to the attention of your healthcare team as soon as possible because the, um, the treatment uh, often requires very urgent uh, use of antibiotics, sometimes even hospitalization. Uh, if, it's, if that infection is occurring when the body is in a weakened condition from a low white blood count. So, and you're not going to know the difference of whether you just have a cold as I do or whether you actually have a, a more serious infection in the middle of this. So the best thing to do is to notify your healthcare team uh, at the time that's recognized, not, not the next day, but the, the same day. And, uh, and get advice from them. It may be that uh, this is a routine problem that won't need any, any attention at all, but it may be something you would need to be evaluated for that same day. So I think that's probably the most uh, important thing to know uh, is to recognize that, uh, that while a range of infections can occur in cancer patients related to cancer or the treatment, we have excellent management for them in terms of antibiotics. We have some preventive strategies that, that can be used that you can use. And in certain situations, there are medications that can help boost the white blood cell count, and those can be used to help stimulate the white cells after chemotherapy if need be uh, to try to prevent these events. Um, but the most important thing, again, is to partner with your healthcare team and, uh, and not overlook what to you might be a small problem uh, at the time but could be a bigger problem later in terms of early recognition of infection. 
So I think maybe that I've said enough for now. I'd be happy to come back and address uh, any questions that the audience may have, Carolyn, uh, at the end of the program. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Crawford, for just a wonderful presentation and really setting the context of the call and also your focus on infection and its importance. Our next speaker is Dr. Douglas Sawyer. Dr. Sawyer is Lisa R. Jacobson, Associate Professor of Medicine. He's Chief Division of Cardiovascular Medicine. He's Director, Cardiovascular Medicine Fellowship Training Program at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And Dr. Sawyer is going to focus on deep vein thrombosis as an area of concern in terms of medical emergencies. And he, too, is going to cover some of the causes and risk factors and signs and symptoms and practical guidelines to, to manage um, deep vein thrombosis, as well as the importance of communicating with your healthcare team and any research that's going on currently. Dr. Sawyer? Thank you, Carolyn, for the invitation to participate in this call. Um, so I'm going to talk about deep vein thrombosis, and uh, Dr. Crawford will begin with a definition. So a thrombosis is a blood clot, which uh, obviously is a normal thing if your blood is out of your body, but when it's inside your body, in a vein, it's abnormal. And a vein, a deep vein, is a vein deep inside our bodies, as it's implied. Um, and it, a deep vein thrombosis um, is an occurrence that can occur in many people, um, but cancer in particular is, puts people at risk for it uh, for reasons that some are known, some are unknown. Um, some cancers are more associated with these clots than others. When a clot occurs in a vein, it backs up the blood flow such that your um, the body doesn't uh, drain the fluid normally. So if a clot occurs in your leg or your arm uh, or the vein draining your leg and arm, you're, it might swell up and become warm and, and uh, red and painful. And those are the main symptoms that um, alert us that we have a, a deep, might have a deep vein thrombosis. A, a blood clot in the vein, one of the big problems, um, as you might guess, is that if that vein uh, clot leaves that place, it travels up into the heart, and the next place it goes is into the lungs, and that's called a pulmonary embolus. And uh, a deep vein thrombosis causes pain and swelling in your leg, but a pulmonary embolus is more life-threatening. And that's one of the main things that uh, main reasons why we need to treat deep vein thrombosis early um, and effectively. Cancer, as I mentioned, is a risk factor for deep vein thrombosis for a lot of reasons. One of them is the treatment, such as surgery or chemotherapy or hormone therapy, uh, can put people at higher risk for causing our um, blood clotting system be to become active and making a clot more likely to occur. Another is uh, during treatment, some people are immobilized. And immobility or being in a, a hospital bed or any bed for a prolonged period of time will slow the blood flow down coming back from our legs and arms and increase the risk of a blood clot forming. The, um, there are other uh, specific treatments that um, are used in the treatment of cancer that can raise the risk of blood clot. And it's something to uh, talk about with your doctors as, as you go through treatment. There are also people who inherit a risk for uh, blood clots from their relatives. And a history of blood clots in your family will put us at risk for having a, um, a blood clot or deep vein thrombosis. The um, other risk factors to think about are, are as we get older, um, are uh, mostly probably because we're less active. We have a higher risk of blood clot. Any recent surgery, even if it's not for the cancer, can put you at risk for 
developing a deep vein thrombosis, and then other medical conditions such as heart failure uh, or pulmonary disease can put people at risk for higher uh, rates of blood clots. The, um, so I mentioned the signs and symptoms, and one of the things uh, to alert someone that they have a deep vein thrombosis is when swelling is occurring in only one extremity, uh, it's, it's um, more commonly a, uh, a consequence of deep vein thrombosis. Um, and it's something that, again, uh, should alert you to contact your, your doctor and not, as Dr. Crawford mentioned, sending them an email or waiting till the, the follow-up appointment to talk about. But by talking about it early and, and getting in to see someone, even in the emergency room, it can be diagnosed and treated and prevent uh, or lower, lower the risk of developing the, the more life-threatening consequences. The um, diagnosis of deep vein thrombosis is made usually uh, by ultrasound. So it's a very simple procedure where uh, the doctors put ultrasound probe up against the, the vein, uh, the body and the place where the veins might be clotted and look for a sign of clot. So it's not a procedure that uh, causes any great discomfort, and if it is, uh, if a deep vein thrombosis is diagnosed, um, it's easily treated with medications called anticoagulants, and there are uh, both injectable and then oral forms of anticoagulants that are used uh, for the treatment of deep vein thrombosis. So again, can't overemphasize the um, need to, when, you, when someone does develop swelling or pain in an extremity, to have that looked at quickly uh, in order to figure out if that's the cause. The, um, there are ongoing clinical trials uh, looking at um, minimizing risk of deep vein thrombosis in the setting of cancer ter therapy, and you should contact your uh, cancer care team to see if you're eligible for them. Um, there are, as I mentioned, several drugs and new drugs being developed for the treatment of um, deep vein thrombosis. In addition, there are, as new cancer therapies are developed, uh, some of them might raise the concern of deep vein thrombosis, and, and there are trials uh, looking at that more carefully that you might be eligible for. Some of the questions you might want to ask your doctor uh, when uh, considering um, whether you're at risk for a, a blood clot, um, you might uh, talk about things you can do to prevent blood clots from forming if you have a family history of blood clot in particular, or if you're undergoing surgery for other uh, reasons. One of the things you can do is stay active. As Dr. Crawford mentioned, stay active for, uh, staying active helps keep the blood moving in our bodies. I didn't mention it, but one risk factor for deep vein thrombosis is a prolonged uh, sit in an airplane trip, and that just reemphasizes the fact that uh, activity is a way to keep blood moving effectively and preventing it from uh, staying too long in a place where it can activate the coagulation system or the clotting system. Um, that's all I had to say right now, but again, as Dr. Crawford said, I'd be happy to answer questions about um, uh, issues that you have uh, related to deep vein thrombosis and blood clotting. Thank you very much, Dr. Cho. It was an excellent presentation, very informative and, and very helpful for people to better understand about deep vein thrombosis. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. 
And our next speaker, before we take questions, is Dr. Anne LaCasse, and uh, she is Instructor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And her focus is going to be on tumor lysis syndrome, so she's going to define that for you. And also she's going to focus upon um, some of its causes, risk factors, signs, and symptoms, and practical ways to manage it, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team. Dr. LaCasse? Thank you very much. Uh, so tumor lysis syndrome is actually a fairly rare oncologic emergency, which is caused when tumor cells are rapidly destroyed. And when that happens, they release the contents of the cells into the blood, uh, and these substances include potassium and uh, phosphates, as well as uh, uh, breakdown products of the uh, DNA from the uh, tumor cells. And uh, if untreated, it can cause substantial problems. So in terms of the formal definition, uh, there are really two subsets of tumor lysis. That's what's called laboratory tumor lysis, which is really purely that based on the laboratory values of the patient, and it's defined as having at least two of the following um, uh, laboratory abnormalities, which would include an elevated uh, uric acid, an elevated potassium, an elevated um, uh, uh, phosphate level, as well as a decreased calcium because the calcium and phosphate can bind together. And uh, it's either defined as an increase in those levels uh, above an absolute value or if they increase 25% above uh, the, the baseline values. And uh, this is defined to happen uh, within the time frame of three days before um, or seven days after starting treatment and in the setting of getting uh, intravenous fluid and a drug to lower the uric acid. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So that's, that's the laboratory tumor lysis. And that's by far and away the most uh, uh, common thing that we see. In terms of clinical tumor lysis, because we have such good uh, ways of managing this problem, it's extremely rare that we see, uh, we see clinical tumor lysis, which is defined as uh, an increase in the kidney function above a certain level, which in very rare circumstances can lead to the need for dialysis, or um, the other two clinical problems that can be associated are seizures or um, abnormal heart rhythms. And again, the last two are, are very, very uh, uncommon. So risk factors for developing tumor lysis uh, really have uh, the majority of the risk has to do with what type of cancer we're dealing with, and it's those types of cancers that are dividing rapidly. Uh, and uh, the particular types of cancers where we see tumor lysis are the, the classic uh, diagnosis is Burkitt lymphoma, which is a very fast-growing type of lymphoma seen uh, more in children but also in adults. There are some types of fast-growing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, particularly what we call large-cell lymphoma, which can be uh, associated with tumor lysis. Um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia and rarely acute myelogenous leukemia when there are um, significantly elevated white blood cell counts are associated. Uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, again, particularly when patients have very elevated white blood cell counts, um, rarely we'll see uh, tumor lysis in that setting. Um, in terms of uh, the solid tumors, it's pretty unusual. Uh, in fact, it's, it's really case reports of, of patients with solid tumors uh, when they initiate chemotherapy developing tumor lysis. But there have been some reports, and usually in that setting, that's, those are patients who have um, a lot of, uh, of tumor burden. Um, other things associated with risk for uh, tumor lysis, uh, in, in addition to the type of uh, cancer that we're dealing with, is, again, the tumor burden. So patients with lymphoma who have 
uh, masses that are greater than 10 centimeters or have elevated white blood cell counts uh, above the 50,000 range are at a higher risk of developing tumor lysis. There's a blood test called LDH, which is different from LDL, uh, cholesterol measurement. Um, now, that is a, a blood test which may reflect how much uh, lymphoma is around. It also may be elevated in some of the leukemias and in CLL. Having a significantly elevated LDH is a marker of uh, risk for developing tumor lysis. Uh, and then there's some um, a few other associated risks for, for patients who have elevated uric acid before they start treatment. They're more likely to develop this complication. Patients whose kidneys uh, kidney function isn't normal, uh, or patients who are significantly dehydrated, uh, which can lead to abnormal kidney function, is also a contributing risk. And people who have uh, their uh, urine is more acid than others, they they also are at higher risk. Um, the, the interesting thing about tumor lysis uh, is that it, it almost always occurs within the first 48 hours uh, uh, after a patient initiates chemotherapy. And usually the patients who are at highest risk for tumor lysis are actually treated in the hospital. So they're observed. Uh, this is a very uh, well-known phenomenon, something that all oncologists are aware of, and they're going to monitor patients uh, at risk for tumor lysis very, very uh, carefully. Uh, rarely, and particularly in Burkitt lymphoma, um, this very fast-growing type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, sometimes patients can have cells that are dividing uh, so rapidly uh, that they can develop tumor lysis even before they receive chemotherapy. But again, that's, uh, Burkitt is a very rare type of lymphoma, and it's, it's quite unusual for that to develop. And usually by that time, patients would be having symptoms, and that would take them uh, to the attention of their uh, physicians. So really the key uh, in treating tumor lysis is actually to prevent it. Uh, and uh, the, the, the most important factor in preventing, or one of the most important factors in preventing tumor lysis is good hydration. So whenever we start to treat a patient who we think is at risk for tumor lysis, we give lots of intravenous fluid. Uh, and it's very important to continue that fluid and not uh, and not stop the fluid, uh, even if patients are beginning to get into trouble with too much fluid accumulating. Sometimes it can accumulate in the lungs, particularly if patients' um, hearts don't pump as well as they should. And that's usually managed um, by giving patients diuretics to make the urine uh, flow even uh, greater and get rid of that fluid. Um, and uh, in the past, we used to uh, make the urine uh, alkalinized, uh, but we've learned over time that for most situations, that is probably not necessary and actually can lead uh, to some problems with the kidney. So usually we don't do that. Uh, but then the other mainstay of managing tumor lysis are medications to, to lower the uric acid. And the, the one uh, medication that's been around for years and years is allopurinol, which is actually a drug which is used to treat gout, and it um, helps the body manage the, uh, the uric acid that accumulates in the blood when these tumor cells die and allows it to be uh, to come down so that it doesn't cause what can happen is if the uric acid accumulates in the blood, it can um, what we call precipitate in the kidneys and cause the kidneys not to function properly. So allopurinol is one drug. And then fortunately, we have a, a newer drug, which is called raspiricase, which is uh, a very good uh, treatment to lower the uric acid and to prevent um, tumor lysis syndrome. And for patients who, some patients are allergic to allopurinol or for patients who cannot uh, get lots of intravenous fluids to protect the kidneys, fortunately, a raspiricase is so good at getting rid of the, uh, the uric acid and managing the tumor lysis, you don't have to worry about the, the fluids. So there are um, a 
guidelines for determining which patients you would treat with rasburicase initially, and those are patients who have uh, who are at very high risk for uh, tumor lysis. And for those who are at lower risk for tumor lysis, we typically use allopurinol and fluids. Uh, the key is to monitoring patients' um, blood tests uh, very carefully, uh, particularly within the first few days uh, of uh, their starting chemotherapy. Um, rarely, uh, when when tumor lysis does develop, uh, we again have these uh, can add rasburicase if someone's using uh, allopurinol, uh, and rarely patients will need to go on dialysis. But oftentimes uh, they're able to quickly come off dialysis as the uh, as the um, whole syndrome has gotten under control. Uh, so that's usually a temporary uh, uh, complication. And there have been some studies, uh, recent studies, mostly in the pediatric setting, looking at, uh, at the, uh, how well rasburicase works. And it does have some potential side effects, particularly for uh, it can cause breakdown of red blood cells, but that's really uh, not a common problem, and there are very good guidelines for, uh, for looking for that. So uh, in, for patients who are being treated as outpatients, uh, for pa those patients who are, have um, sort of lower risk of tumor lysis but still have a fair bit of uh, lymphoma or leukemia around, uh, we typically start them on allopurinol as an outpatient before you start your chemotherapy and follow patients closely. And uh, if there's any question that someone's at higher risk, those patients are almost always treated in the hospital. Uh, so uh, fortunately, this is an area that uh, I think is very well understood and it's, it's uh, rare that we really see people get into significant trouble with tumor lysis, particularly since we have this new drug, Respiracase. So uh, that's, that's about all I had to say, but I'd be happy also to uh, take any questions. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lucas, and a really excellent presentation, and also the fact that, indeed, this is, um, this is a medical emergency that actually you have a very specific way to manage and really um, has, has made a tremendous difference in the lives of the people that you're working with and treating. So this is very helpful, and I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Well, I think we now do have time for questions. We have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask, um, actually, uh, Mary, our operator, to actually um, bring all of our speakers on board so that we're all here to take your questions. And um, I'm going to ask Mary to explain to you how to queue up for questions so that you can go ahead and ask your questions. And let, let's have the questions begin. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Our first question comes from Henry. Hello. Hello. Hi, Henry. Your question? My question is, I wonder if um, your um, DVT uh, doc could talk a little bit about superior vena cava syndrome, how to recognize it and how they treat it. Sure. Thank you for the question. Dr. Sawyer? Yeah, thank you for your question. Um, so superior vena cava is the vein that, that drains the top of the body. And um, the syndrome you're referring to is when uh, that vein becomes obstructed either by a, a deep vein thrombosis or by compression by something outside the vein or, in, in some cases, uh, patients particularly who receive um, catheters uh, put in for treatment of their cancer in particular. Um, and the, the signs and symptoms are, as I mentioned, the deep vein thrombosis blacks up the uh, blood flow. And so the uh, extremities and uh, sometimes the face get swollen, um, and that would be the most common sign and symptom of a superior vena cava syndrome. The treatment um, in the absence of a, a catheter is uh, similar in that we anticoagulate. We block the clotting cascade 
to try to let the body um, uh, get rid of the clot on its own by preventing clotting from continuing. I don't know if I answered your question well enough there, sir. And is that treated in the hospital setting or in the outpatient setting? How is that treated usually? It usually begins in the hospital setting. Um, the treatment begins with intravenous anticoagulation uh, followed by oral anticoagulation. Um, and then there are times where um, if a catheter is in place, it, there are times where doctors feel it's necessary to remove that catheter uh, to allow the vein to drain normally. Um, there are other, I'm sorry, Dr. Crawford may want to speak. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, just that maybe you're going to, going to say this, I didn't mean to cut you off, but the, uh, you know, if, this, if part of the problem is due to a tumor, if there's tumor compressing part of the superior vena cava, whether it's a right. cancer right. of the lung or lymphoma or other things, often it will require some change in cancer treatment, often radiation treatment, um, sometimes chemotherapy is used uh, in addition Thanks. to whatever's done to the clot. Thanks for jumping in. That was good. Sure. It's wonderful. You get to see the multidisciplinary team, which we really are very fortunate to have with us today in working together. And you, it's a kind of a bird's eye view that you often don't get to see all the different specialties that actually are working together vigorously to try to most best manage your care. So thank you. Um, okay, um, our next question then. Thank you, Henry, for that first question. Excellent. Our next question comes from Mildred. Uh, yes, I'm directing my question to Dr. Crawford on general ill health. Um, I always feel foolish having to call the doctor, especially since I haven't been getting many good responses. I, um, I have a pain syndrome, fibromyalgia, and I have felt that that has increased my pain level because, you know, that the uh, chemo side effects have increased my muscle pain, um, and I get... Um, Severe, severe body aches. I've had uh, fevers up to a 99, almost 100. The, the doctor doesn't want to hear anything unless the fever is over 100.5. And um, at times I have felt really, really severe pain. Um, didn't know what to do with myself. Your question. Your um, question. My, my question is, what do you do? And what is your opinion as to? what type of things I can do um, or just, you know, push it through. Like I just spent two days in bed in extreme pain with fever and cough and everything, but I didn't feel that, you know, I wanted to call the doctor because I hadn't had much response before. Okay, that's an excellent question. The whole issue of the, um, so Dr. Crawford, would you start by addressing that question? Certainly. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for the question. I think... Um, you demonstrate the complexity of some of these things. Uh, sometimes fever can be a sign of infection. Sometimes it can be you know, more of a sign of uh, inflammation in the body, uh, not related to an, uh, to an active infection, but perhaps to some uh, inflammatory response to the cancer or the or the treatment you're under. So it's, it's hard to know a bit there. The, what I was focusing on largely was acute infection, things that would come up very suddenly, that one day you're feeling well, the next day you've got a fever, and that's often the way uh, these infections will present. Now, I would say that there isn't a, a magic number in terms of the temperature, so even sometimes a low-grade temperature elevation can be a significant one if it's a, a significant change from where you've been the day before or over the weeks before. So I, I think uh, any real change in fever pattern 
particularly if it's accompanied by a change in how you feel overall or other signs of infection like you're talking about with cough, would be something to bring to your doctor's attention. If this is being, if this is however has been going on chronically, then it does sound um, more like it's more an inflammatory response to something and it may lead the doctor to evaluate other things other than infection. But either way, you're not going to be able to sort out which is which when it first happens and you were very correct in trying to get your doctor's attention in that regard. And it would help to talk about um, the whole issue of doctor-patient communication and, and when you do have something troubling you, well, I'm going to ask two questions. Well, one is the doctor-patient communication, but the other one is that concept of differential diagnosis or how do you determine what, how does a doctor determine what is actually the cause of what's going on and as in the example that Mildred's giving. Dr. Groff, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, so I think... Um, um, first, in terms of communication, there are certainly days in which it may be very difficult to reach your doctor, but there should be a nurse or other person in the office that, that may be more available to you that can clearly uh, help you get that information to, to the right people so a decision can be made. Um, and then secondly, I would say in terms of the uh, differential diagnosis, it, obviously there's no substitute for knowing all the medical information, so obviously we can, can give you very little information here, not knowing uh, the history of the cancer, your other medical conditions, and the medicines you're on, all of which could be part of this uh, aching and fever. Um, so any one of those things could be contributing to that. Uh, but the, the oncologist would, by knowing your records, would know that immediately then. If we're thinking about uh, an acute infection on top of what else is going on, then the time course from when your last treatment would be would be quite important because that would be somewhat predictive of whether or not your white cell count might be low. Um, it doesn't happen immediately after chemotherapy, but often a week or 10 days after chemotherapy treatment is often when the patients are most susceptible to an infection uh, with typical types of chemotherapy. So, again, knowing that time course would help. But in the end, it takes... Um, not just talking over the phone, but an examination uh, to look for signs of infection. It takes measurement of the blood, particularly the blood cell count, uh, uh, and potentially x-rays, depending on what else is going on. So how, how much is done, uh, how far down the differential diagnosis, uh, as you're talking about, Carolyn, uh, the doctor would go, would really depend upon that complex of the history, the timing, um, your other medications, and, and the urgency. Thank you. I would say that many of the people that we speak to at Cancer Care often do. It is uh, sometimes um, complex for people to engage in conversations with their physicians. Sometimes it's hard. People, as I think Dr. Crawford said, that maybe the day, the busy day, often it's an oncology nurse in the practice. If, however, that you're consistently really having a very hard time with communication, um, there are some people who do at some point really consider getting a second opinion if they're really just feeling like they're, they're suffering and they can't quite get the answer that they need. So it's not something that you necessarily have to do instantly, but if, it's, if things aren't working and you've tried a number of different things, and sometimes even working with our staff at Cancer Care, the social work staff, just to see if there are different communication styles to use to get through to them. But if it's really not working, then it is okay at sometimes to consider a second opinion. And some people do that, and some of your physicians may encourage it as well. Um, that, that can happen if it just doesn't seem to be working out well. Does that make sense to our speakers in terms of their experience with this as well? Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. I, I think very much so. I think that, you know, all of us in practice uh, 
when you're in the clinic seeing patients, obviously that has to be your first priority. So, but we also know that problems don't arise just in the clinic, so it's very important that the practice have a way to deal with patients' problems when they happen outside the clinic. Uh, and so having a triage system and phone mechanisms and other ways to, to communicate are, are very important. And, you know, sometimes you want to clarify that up front when you are seeing your physicians to find out, you know, what, when you, if you do have a question between appointments, you know, who do you call, um, you, know, um, you know, what's the expectation of return time, um, you know, who's in the staff, who's in the staff. Often people run into problems in the evening, who do you call then. So that many offices have a very specific system for dealing with that, as Dr. Crawford said, and it's important that you know that so that you're, you feel well-equipped so that no matter when something comes up, you can call and feel like you're going to get some response that's going to be helpful to you. Um, okay, thank you. That's an excellent question, Mildred. Thank you. Our next question. Our next question comes from Carol P. Hi, thank you very much for taking my question. Um, this is for Dr. Sawyer, and this concerns um, plane rides. You mentioned that potentially going on plane rides and lack of activity um, could be a catalyst for deep vein thrombosis. And um, my husband and I are scheduled for a trip that's a, a six-hour trip without stopping, and I'm wondering if that could be problematic. Well, I, I think that um, so. It, it happens very rarely is the first thing to know. And then one, the best way to avoid it is to make sure that you uh, do little exercises along the way. I, I, when I take plane rides, I have kind of restlessness and I can't sit still, so I sort of think that's my own body trying to help me. Um, I think, you know, making sure you uh, get up and about, especially if you're in a um, in coach where you can't put your feet up um, to, you know, flex your muscles periodically um, is one strategy, but if you can get up and walk the plane a couple of times during your trip, you should be fine. Um, if, if you have already had a, a deep vein thrombosis, you may want to talk to your doctor about getting compression stockings to wear during the trip. But in the absence of that, I would just say try to be active during the trip. Excellent. I hope that helps, uh, Carol. That sounds like a really, I'm sure this question on many people's mind, um, mm -hmm. and I um, appreciate that information. Um, our next question, please. Our next question comes from Ron. Sorry, your line my, is open. Yes, my question has to do with uh, preventing shingles, and also is it important to avoid people who have received live vaccines? Uh, both good questions. There, there is a, a vaccine now available for shingles, and I'm glad you bring that up. And I think uh, it is recommended that uh, it be used uh, as a preventive strategy in healthy uh, older patients who are at risk for, uh, for, for, for shingles. Um, the, the issue uh, that you bring up is that if you already have an active cancer going through uh, treatment, this is a live vaccine, and so there is you know, some concern in that setting um, that you may activate it. So it's, it's a preventive strategy mainly recommended for uh, um, well, uh, older individuals not in the active setting of, of, of cancer. Now, there are certainly other pre preventive um, strategies in other settings, such as flu vaccine and other things, which are also very important preventive measures to be taken. Uh, but I think the, the live vaccine uh, 
would have to be uh, done under consultation with your doctor before it was given if you were in the midst of, of active therapy. Excellent question. Now, what about other types of vaccines that are, you know, that um, flu vaccines and those kinds of things that someone's in the midst of treatment, what happens then? Well, well again, flu vaccine, pretty routinely all of us should be take, t- taking it um, uh, if you have any exposure to, to the flu, either if you're in a, a medical profession or if you're a patient or if you're a, a teacher exposed to a variety of so the, the, the the majority of the population, I think, is now uh, in the group that should be getting a, a, a flu vaccine uh, on an annual basis. Uh, in terms, the, the other thing that commonly comes up is pneumovax, which is a vaccine against a particular type of pneumonia, pneumococcal pneumonia. That's a, a less common problem than the flu in terms of the number of people, uh, but it can be a very serious uh, problem and one that can uh, be improved significantly by the use of the Pneumovax vaccine. That does not need to be taken uh, uh, annually. It can be done uh, every five or sometimes every ten years, depending on uh, uh, the guidelines for the individual and the doctor. Uh, but again, that would also be recommended to be done. And there are particular populations that seem to be at increased risk of that. Uh, so if you're um, going to undergo removal of your spleen. It's very important to have that uh, done beforehand. That's uh, only done in a select number of patients uh, within some subsets of uh, uh, problems such as thrombocytopenia and things. But but the pneumovax and the flu vaccine are the two most common things we we deal with on a daily basis in our practices, as well as now the the, the, uh, vaccine for shingles. And I'm going to ask a question for all of our speakers. Do you feel that there are more, um, really, um, methods to deal with medical emergencies and cancer treatment than there were in the past, that we've come um, sort of a distance in terms of our ability to manage these problems than we could in the past? And, um, and is that because of research or clinical trials, or what's, what's caused that change in our ability to kind of better manage um, these problems? Well, maybe, maybe I'll start again uh, with that. So certainly in the area of infection, um, we've made huge strides in terms of uh, just some of the things we've just talked about, some of the preventive strategies, uh, but then also in the development of newer antibiotics uh, that are safer, less side effects, that have, treat a broader range of infections. We have uh, um, treatments for antivirals. still don't have one for the cold yet, but we've, we've, we've certainly got a number of uh, of um, antiviral agents and antifungal agents, so we can treat um, a much broader range of infections than we could before. Uh, and in addition, we have, uh, since so much of the problem is related, at least in the cancer patient, related to the white blood cell counts after chemotherapy, um, through sort of uh, biotechnology now, we have available the, the hormone that regulates the white cells in our bodies. Um, uh, and so we can use that as, a, as an agent to stimulate and boost the white cells. So that's all come about through um, advances in medicine and research and, uh, and biotechnology and clinical trials. So I think, uh, uh, at least in the infection area, there's a whole lot more things we can do. And I think the other thing we've done better uh, with in the last couple of decades is uh, studying people better so we know outcomes better. We don't just give these things and, uh, without a knowledge base. We have 
uh, much more evidence, not only from clinical trials, but from large population studies of, of how some of these agents work and what the benefits are and what the risks are. So I, I think all that's helped us help inform our decisions much better. Thank you, Dr. Sawyer. Did you want to comment? Sure. I mean, I think I'll just reiterate what Dr. Crawford said. That I think um, just the advances that have taken place throughout medicine over the last decades, um, and I think it's a, a tribute to our um, educational and industry and, and government collaborations over the years that have given us therapies and ways to approach both diagnostically and, and treating um, all the different things that can come up during cancer treatment. Um, including infection, but also clotting and, and other things that we've talked about in other um, cancer care talks, like heart failure, for example. And and the advances because of clinical research and right. And, uh, I think in, and the other thing is that we've trained, you know, all this stuff goes back then to medical school to train the new generation of doctors, and they come out smarter and more thoughtful and hopefully able to take on the new challenges that are going to come up um, that we can't anticipate um, as new treatments come about and, and people with cancer are getting um, uh, successful cures of their cancer. Um, there may be other issues that come up later on, um, both as a consequence of the cancer but also the treatment. And uh, it requires us you know, to continue to uh, collaborate like we're doing on this phone call, but also just in our medical centers across um, across divisions and departments. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And Dr. Lacaze, do you want to comment? I, I think I, as I mentioned during my uh, talk, this drug Raspiracase is new, and that came about through clinical trials, and I think that's, that's made a big difference uh, for preventing tumor lysis above and beyond what we already had available, but I would echo everything that uh, both speakers had said. And I guess our, the concluding question I want to ask all of our physicians is a question that comes up a lot, um, and it came up actually during the call today as well, is the whole issue of doctor-patient communication um, or help communicating with the healthcare team. And if, and if each of you can just, are there things that you find are very valuable for people to think and keep in mind as they're, uh, as they're trying to traverse that very difficult area of really the communication piece and, and, you know, what to bring up and what and, <clears throat> and how promptly to do it and just um, the importance of the communication. It's a kind of an area that um, we're not taught to do. Um, people, when they become, when they develop cancer, are not taught. They don't have a, a, a course on how to communicate and often don't quite know what to do. And um, so I wondered if any of you have any suggestions or tips that you could offer our audience today. <clears throat> Dr. Crawford? Uh, well, Carolyn, thanks. First, uh, it's a vital importance, and I think, uh, you know, we're struggling with this, and even, again, in our medical schools, how do we teach medical students to communicate better with uh, with patients and families, and so that uh, the communication and, and the words we use uh, convey what we need them to, because it's such a stressful situation, particularly in the in the cancer setting, to be for the patient, the family member, and the health professionals to try to deal with all the issues uh, in what is uh, ever and ever less time uh, in the clinic to do that. So it really does take a team and a team approach to, to make this happen. So uh, uh, in our practice, and I'm sure in many, uh, it really is a team approach usually of a, a physician uh, coupled with a nurse or a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, uh, and, and others who are all engaged at some point in the, the care of the patient. So in that, sometimes it's often confusing to know who to call for what as well. So I think 
Carolyn, I think the suggestion you made was a good one. You're always going to have questions after that initial visit or subsequent visits that need to be addressed. Some of them can probably be addressed at the next visit, but many others can't, and other things are going to develop between visits. And so who do you call when? So I think it's important uh, in that first visit to get some information from the from the physician about who to call and when to call and for what. And so we uh, at least hand out a card to each other of our patients with the names of uh, the key people for them to know and the numbers to know and and what when to call the office for a routine problem and when to call the operator for something more emergent and, and who they can expect to talk to. So I think getting that information is one of the most important things to get uh, from your initial visit with your doctor. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Sawyer? Yeah, I think um, one of the things we try to uh, coach our patients is to, to pick up the phone and call us. And I think there's a reluctance on many people's part to, oh, I don't want to call, I don't want to bother the doctor because they're such a busy person. But, in fact, our busyness, I mean, we, we want to be busy. We want to be here for our patients. And um, so those cards don't that we hand out as well don't get used as often as, as we'd like, honestly. Um, the the call that comes in uh, ahead of the schedule usually saves a trip to the hospital in some cases, and um, and that's the kind of call we like to get. So we have, in addition to the, the number during the daytime, I think a lot of practices have set up um, access centers where they'll get a caller, will get a live practitioner at any time of day or night, and if you're if your own doctor doesn't have that, I, I think um, they might want to get that feedback that you'd like that if, if you're having trouble getting through to them um, with your needs and you're not getting your needs filled. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Case? Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think that probably the best time to set up sort of ground rules on when to call and who to call for what uh, is on that first, or maybe not the first visit, because I think oftentimes there's such an overwhelming amount of information about the disease and the prognosis and what the treatment is going to be that uh, it, it, it may be better on the second visit when you've sort of had a chance to digest things and patients can go home and, and write down questions to bring to the next visit so that they can outline Clearly, you know what what would you consider an emergency, and what things do you absolutely must you uh, page in the middle of the night for? And we really try to tell patients we want to know about those things, and you know we are we're upset if we hear the next day uh, that you had a fever or you were in terrible pain and we didn't know about it. And then on the flip side, uh, knowing what things are appropriate to call the office with, uh, and how to properly use email according to the you know what 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 you agree upon, you know, sometimes we get very long emails from patients with lots of questions and, you know, it may be that we're not at our email all the time or there's certain things that must should be paged uh, if you have a fever. We, we, we don't want to see that in email because you just don't know what the turnaround time is. Uh, and if they're long, complicated questions, oftentimes those are much better answered uh, in person or uh, or over the phone. So I think setting that up early so that everybody has the same expectation about how to communicate when is, is really key. That's excellent. And if for some reason, I know some of you on the call have been perhaps dealing with your cancer for a while, and if you hadn't set those up, it's okay in your next visit to do that. Um, I, we're, I think that, um, you know, we know that many of you are in different points along your cancer experience. So if you could just take this information and use it, um, and so if you didn't do it like the first time, you can do it um, the next time you go when you're, and really get that information that you need um, to really, I guess what everybody is saying, and it's really nice to hear all of the physicians on this call saying, call us. 
when something's troubling you, don't wait. I guess that's is that the that's pretty much the bottom line message that we're all hearing. Um, or am I the only one hearing that? Are we all hearing that too? <laughs> so that, that's really important. Um, well, I really want to thank our speakers today. They've been really extraordinary, um, just an extraordinary um, team we have here of multidiscipline disciplines actually uh, presenting to us on this really on this important topic. And I know we'll be doing this topic again. There are many other um, aspects of this topic that we could cover. Um, and I also want to thank those of you who've queued up and asked such really excellent questions. We know that you asked the questions, of course, um, to um, get some help for yourself, but in asking the question, you end up actually helping many other people, um, of course, on the call. Um, so we really want to thank you for, for taking the time to ask your questions and those of you who've been listening. Now, we want to run, I want to remind you all that this is a one-hour uh, telephone workshop and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many more needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. And... Um, with that in mind, um, although the program is about to end, I do want to say a few words about what do you do now because um, um, I want to connect you to all the services that you can access from Cancer Care that are free. Now, Cancer Care is um, an organization that has a staff of 60 master's level trained oncology social workers. And we're here to provide a host of help and services to you at no cost to you. They're free services. And you can call us at one 800 813-HOPE, that's actually in all the materials you got in your materials from us. And our social workers are here to do lots of different things. We offer practical and financial assistance. We offer someone to talk to who is professionally trained to listen and to care and to help you figure out the solutions sometimes to problems that you feel are difficult. Um, we offer counseling services. We offer support groups both on the telephone and online. Um, and so that some people, you live in large, along large distances and large areas, and we do use the telephone for telephone support groups, and some people like to have online groups. And, of course, we have these telephone workshops that enable all of you to come together for an hour um, from all over the country and world and all be together to get this information. And, of course, um, we do have lots of materials, fact sheets and publications, that you can order from us by calling us on our 800 number or visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, I'd like you to think of us as us being with you every step of the way. Um, I wouldn't want you to feel like you're alone in coping with your cancer. Because the program is ending right now, cancer care services continue after this hour, and you can call us after the program with any questions or concerns you may have. If you didn't get to ask a question or you thought of a question as the program was ending and would like to ask it, please do call us. But we really are with you every step of the way. And most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I don't want anyone to feel that you are alone in coping with cancer. I want you to now feel that you're part of a community of support um, and that you can call us at any time. Um, and, um, you know, take advantage of these services, um, ask your questions, access help from us. Um, we offered such a range of services. Um, and um, you also have access to all the other organizations that partner with us today. So there's a, hopefully you now have a, a world of larger resources to, and people to call upon. And, of course, most importantly, we hope that the call has given you information that will help you work with your healthcare team in the most effective way to get the best care for yourself. So I want to thank you all for participating today on the teleconference, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the program. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.